Thanks. All right. They were uh, commenting on my haircut here in the front row, the peanut gallery up here. I uh, went to get my haircut yesterday morning, and uh, it was. <laughs> I have this experience a lot where I feel like I talk about Jesus with my hairstylist like almost every time. I think it's because you're there for 45 minutes, right? And like, oh, it doesn't take 45 minutes for you? No. I usually go to expensive places. This time I did not. Um, but yeah, so I sat down and we started talking about Jesus and then quickly, like I've been in enough places now that I know immediately if they're good or not. And right when she carved into the back, I was like, oh no. She's a sister in Christ, but oh no. All right. Um, thanks. So, on more important notes, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll jump into the scripture. If you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And what I like to do each week as we go through the book of Matthew is to bring the stories of the Bible alive by sharing context, by sharing the meanings of the original words, should that actually bring the story alive, and really dig into the passage, find out what it's meaning, and then after that, apply it to our lives. So that's where we're going today. We've been going through the entire book of Matthew, if, if you're new to us, and uh, we're on chapter 9 here. And uh, man, it's so good. The whole, the whole thing is just really, really good. We're in the part where uh, we just came out of like a big, broad teaching of Jesus's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and now it's a series of stories that display what he teaches. It displays a lifestyle that supports the teachings that he, he just laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 9, we're going to continue on um, and, uh, and uh, read, me, read, with me, read with me, if you will. Here we go. Verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own hometown. So he was on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and he did some ministry there. They asked him to leave that town, the residents of that town. So he gets into a boat. He doesn't object. He just gets into the boat, and he leaves, and he crosses over to his own hometown. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is, easier to, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Oh, I'm sorry. But I want you to know that the, authority, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he said to the paralyzed man, get up. Take up your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Can we just stop and appreciate how cool Jesus is? I mean, all right, we'll get into something more, uh, more substantial than that. But I just, I'm just so impressed continually. It sounds, it sounds almost like blasphemy to say it this way, but every time I read stuff like this, I'm just so impressed with who he is. He's just a staggering, amazing person. And so let's break it, let's, let's get into these and let's break down a couple of these stories and see a little bit, kind of bring these alive a little bit more and find out what was going on. So the first one, he comes into his hometown and they bring him a paralyzed man. And immediately, the, the friends bring the paralyzed man in. He might, he's on a mat. They probably like drop him at the feet of Jesus. And it says in the story that he saw their faith. So he sees this, the faith of the guy on the mat and he sees the faith of the individuals that bring him in. And when he sees that, he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So immediately the, the crowd would be like, what in the world is this guy talking about? That is a huge amount of authority that he's just claimed to forg forgive sins. Like this went even beyond what the people who were waiting for the Messiah in earnest would have thought the Messiah would come to do. This is like totally something that's reserved for God and God alone. And so when Jesus says this, there's probably, it's the Pharisees where it says he kind of reads their heart and says like, you know, he knows what's going on in their heart. But probably the rest of the crowd too is like, oh my gosh. And they're probably saying, oh my gosh, also because the Pharisees are standing right there and they know what these religious leaders would think about that. And so immediately Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He's bold as a lion. He's, he looks at this individual and he says, take heart, son. Calls him son. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. So of course, the teachers of the law say to themselves, this guy's blaspheming. Blaspheming in this case is like, he's taking on the role of God. Like, why would he be doing that? And so Jesus knows their thoughts, which is pretty awesome. And he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? which you can't see at all? Like, you won't know if I have authority over that or not? Or is it easier for me to come and say to this paralyzed guy, get up and, and take up your mat and walk? Which one's easier to say? Which, one, which claim would be easier to prove out or not prove out? And then so Jesus, I, I get the picture that Jesus like looks right at them and he like, not with anger, but he's got like these eyes that are just like intense. And he goes, but I want you to know that I have the authority to forgive sins on the earth, that the Son of Man has the authority to sin forgive sins on the earth. And therefore, so I say to this guy, get up your mountain walk. Guy gets up, and the whole crowd goes crazy. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, who is this guy? And the thing that we've been seeing through Matthew ever since we exited the Sermon on the Mount is that the big question that Matthew is answering right now is, who is this man? Remember when he calmed the storm? He, they asked the same question. Who's this dude that has authority over the winds and the waves? Even the wind and the wave respond to his voice when he rebukes them. And so this whole thing about who is this guy continues right into Matthew chapter 9. And what he's answering now is insane. He even has authority to forgive sins. This would be like the paramount statement of Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the ultimate judge. 
there's, there's one judge, and that's God. And he's given me the authority to judge. And I want you to know that he's given me what's more important than the authority to forgive or not forgive sins. What's more important than that? At the end of the day, we will all stand before the Lord and we will give an account for our lives. And there's going to be one judge that looks at our life and, say, you know, and, and makes a determination as to how we've lived that life. And, and he's basically saying here, I have the authority in the most important category to say whether you're right or whether you're, you're wrong. In this case, I pronounce forgiveness over this man's life. And everyone's like, you don't have the, who are you? You're just a person like me. And he says, no, 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 no. Like, so that you know this, watch this. And the guy gets up off his mat. It's the ultimate statement of who he is. Don't miss this. Jesus is making a huge declaration about who he is and answering some questions. But in such compassion, don't miss this either. In such compassion, there's this, there's this contingent of the audience that is trying to trap him in a way. They're thinking evil thoughts in, in their hearts and saying, like, this guy's blaspheming. This guy's a sinner. This guy's committing the ultimate sin, which is blasphemy. Trying to take the role of God. And right in that moment, he says, hey, even for you, I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, there the Pharisees go again, making judgments about me in their heart. They're irredeemable. Forget them. I have authority. They're not going to know about it. They're lost. Forget them. They're in the bucket of never to be redeemed. But he doesn't do that at all. He's like, no, 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 no. I want you too. I need you to know this. I have authority in this way. The other thing that's crazy that I want to bring light to here is that there's a powerful statement about community in this, in this passage. This man can only come to the feet of Jesus because there's friends there willing to pick him up, to bring him to the feet of Jesus, and drop him down at the feet of Jesus. And even in the statement, it doesn't say in Matthew, Jesus saw the faith of the man on the mat, and therefore he says, your sins are forgiven, and get up off of your mat and walk. He says he saw their faith, and therefore he declared, your sins are forgiven. Pull this out into our context. What's the stuff that Jesus has declared blessing-wise over your life because of the influence of the community around you. If you do community well, and you have friends that are bringing you to the feet of Jesus, there's going to be places in your life where you get before God, and he's like, you only won that one because of the people around you carried you. When you were in your hardest time, and you did not have the power to get up and physically walk and lay yourself before Jesus— in your time of most, in, in your time of biggest need, you, w- you would have been lost without it. You wouldn't have been able to do it without it. There is a powerful statement about community that's in this. We need friends around us that care enough to bring us to the feet of Jesus. And we need to be the type of people that are willing to inconvenience themselves enough to do this for other people too. You know, 
in, in Mark, it tells a very different story. Well, it's, it's the same story, but it's got different details. They ripped apart the roof of some dude's house and dropped this guy down in the middle of the house. This was not like a layup, like, hey, just jump on my back, and like, we come over here, and like, you lay him down, and it's like, all right, Jesus. They had to work hard to get this guy to the feet of Jesus. They pushed through a crowd. There was probably scorn about him. The guy who owned the house is like, dude, what are you doing? You're just like, you just destroyed my roof, right? Like, there was a, there was a thing that happened here that was real life. This wasn't just like kumbaya-type friendship. This wasn't like, hey, yeah, I guess I'll show up for small group on Wednesday. This was like the real deal. <laughs> Suki's pointing at people. She's like, this is the real deal type of community. This is where the friends are like willing to sacrifice for one another. And the crazy thing about this type of community that I want to point out is this guy gets the miracle of his life. First and foremost, he gets forgiven his sins. There's nothing more than that. Well, there's nothing bigger than that. There is something more than that. You got to imagine that this dude at the end of the day is like, sin's forgiven. Like, dude, like, I'm still messed up to the core. Like, I can't even walk out of this place. Like, thank you for forgiving my sins. That's awesome. But can you heal me too? Jesus does both. Can you imagine the testimony that the friends have? from that? See, if, if you live life in isolation, where it's your walk with Jesus, and you kind of do your thing, and you don't, you're not inconvenienced by the, the, the problems that are going on in other people's lives, do you know how many testimonies you'll have in your life? You'll have the testimonies that you actually go through with Jesus. But what happens if you live in a community where you know the challenges that each other are going through? And you care enough to enter those challenges, and you care enough in those challenges for it to draw you to the feet of Jesus. It's this person's need, it's this paralytic's need that draws this community of guys to the feet of Jesus together. It's all of them. So they all approach the feet of Jesus, and they all leave with this crazy story that they're telling for the rest of their lives. They never paid for lunch ever again in their entire lives. People are like, dude, I heard about this. Will you tell me the details? Absolutely. Like, this is now my testimony. The whole community of people owned this testimony because they cared enough to enter into the challenges of the friends that they had around them. And so if you extrapolate this out, think about this. It's like the victories that we're all gaining, That's testimonies that we take as ours to the extent that we enter into the challenges with each other. To the extent that we enter into the challenges with each other. So that there's like a a piece of vulnerability where there's like, you know, the personal part where it's like, there's a guy on a mat and his friends are like, this is your moment, man. Like, you will walk home. Let us take you. And he has to be vulnerable enough to say, yes, take me. He has to be vulnerable enough to say, I need your help. I cannot do this without you. There's no way that I will get there. You're offering, I'm accepting. That's a powerful part of community, right? And then there's this other part where the friends are willing enough. They're like, we'll probably be publicly scorned for this thing. You know, it's a pain. Like, I've got work today. You know, yeah, we'll probably have to pay for this dude's roof afterwards. Like, there's probably a lot in that. 
But there's two parties here that come together. It's like the vulnerability to accept when you need help, and then there's the, like, the inconvenience of helping. Isn't that usually what it is? It's usually inconvenience. It's like, I got other stuff going on. Like, I don't have time to take you to the feet of Jesus right now. I got this other stuff going on. Got to work so I can pay my tithe to the— ch- No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. For those of you who are new to our church, I'm just joking. <laughs> but there's both. And when that both comes together, there's this powerful moment of community where they experience Jesus in this profound way. And the crazy part is, is when you encounter a testimony like this, it's not just a cool story that you can tell people. It's like testimonies serve to make up the interior life that we have. The most important parts of your life are what you believe to be true about God. And when you experience the testimony of somebody else, when your heart is invested like this, it's feeding and fueling that most important part of your life. It's like, I see Jesus completely differently because the miracle that my friend just experienced. That's awesome. It doesn't need to be our testimony every time, right? It doesn't need to be my check in the mail. It doesn't need to be my job, right? But like the, the level to which we invest up front for that person's breakthrough is the level to which our heart is ready to receive the miracle. You can't get both. You can't do this light investment thing where you're like, oh yeah, I prayed for that dude like once in the shower, you know, for, for his big miracle, and then he got it, and it was like, hey, like high five, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, that'll, that'll do something. But our heart gets invested as we invest. There's an investment, like your heart gets sunk into the, 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 the burdens of other people And then when Jesus shows up, it feels like your miracle because you're invested and you've been inconvenienced and your heart's there. And then you're like, oh, it's my miracle. So this is the type of community that we're trying to build here. And it's such a privilege. I remember, just as a fun story, uh, I was at this this conference. It was a Greek intervarsity conference. So I was on staff with intervarsity and we were doing uh, Greek ministry, so to fraternities and sororities. And there was this dude who was in an apologetics seminar, and he knew apologetics is defense of the faith. It's like, it's having a logical explanation as to why you believe. And so there was this guy in this apologetics seminar. He knew every question, everything. This guy knew every single time there was a question, the guy would put his hand up in the air, and he'd have this eloquent long answer to it, just crushed it. And I was sitting in the back. I was one of the, um, one of the teachers, but I was off at this point. And he starts explaining something. I'm like, dude, this guy just rocks it. And so at the end, I went up, and I was talking to him, and I said, you know, so uh, when, you know, when did you start following Jesus? And he goes, oh, I'm not a Christian. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Christian. And I said, oh, I just assumed because, you know, <laughs> you were schooling everybody in there. You're amazing. And the guy goes, yeah, you know, like, I hang out with a lot of Christians, but I, I, don't, I don't believe. And I said, like, we talk about it a little bit and then I wanted to go work out so I left the conversation and I started walking you didn't expect it to go there huh (laughs) so I start walking towards the elevator and I push the elevator button and I feel like the Lord on me just like hey I want you to go talk to that dude I'm like God I just taught a seminar before that I was in a prayer meeting before that like laundry list of things that I had done for the Lord uh, that morning (laughs) 
And so I like get into the elevator and I feel this thing on, it's like, no, 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 I want you to go talk to this person. So I go back over, I'm super inconvenienced. I wanted to work out and nap. <laughs> so I leave and I go back over. This is real life, right? Like this is how it usually goes. Like you're, you pass someone, I'm supposed to pray for that person. Gosh, but I'm late for my bus. Forget it, you know, and you keep going. This is like the stuff that's real life. This is the like inconvenience stuff. So I get out of the elevator and I walk over and I, I sit with the, the, this guy and, and we start talking and, you know, I start to try to reason with him and reason with him. And finally, I just feel like the Lord's like, I want you to pray for him. So I'm like, okay. It's like, can I pray for you? He's like, oh, I don't want to pray, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He starts talking. I'm like, come on, let me pray for you. Oh, I don't want to pray. We had talked for a while at this point, like 45 minutes. And I was like, out of answers. I'm like, can I just pray? And uh, finally, I was like, can we just pray? And he's like, fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so we both bow our heads. I close my eyes. And before I can even say a word, I may have said like, father, or something <laughs> like that. But I didn't pray. The guy grabs my arm and he's like, hey. Yeah? I know why I don't believe what? I know why I don't believe. I'm like, okay, tell me. And he goes, he explains this like gnarly thing that happened with his family when he was like 10 years old. And that he had seen some hypocrisy in the church when he was at that age. And so there was something inside of him that was just resisting coming to Jesus, even though in his mind he knew all the reasons why this thing was true. And I said, do you want to invite God into your heart? And he goes, starts crying. And he goes, I think he already is. <laughs> I'm like kind of laughing right now, but it was like, it was so awesome. It was so awesome, right? I'm like, that was awesome, right? And so like we hang out and I go, I'll pray for you now. And he's like, yeah, 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 pray for me. <laughs> and so we start praying together and, you know, I bless him. And then I say, okay, you know, you came here with people, right? Yeah, go tell your community what God's done. You know, go tell him what God's done. He's like, okay, okay. So he like runs off. And I walked to the elevator. I didn't have time to work out. And I was like, awesome. Like, that was amazing, right? That's the type of stuff. Like, something happened to me in that moment. It was the privilege of my life to be the person that carried him to the feet of Jesus on the mat. He was paralyzed. It took me asking three times for him to just pray. He was not going to walk to Jesus' feet by himself. And I make this pitiful little sacrifice that we all correctly chuckled at of not going to work out in the middle of this conference, and God gives me the privilege of getting to see him in action. Where all I do is invite him in, invite him to pray, put him at the feet of Jesus and be like, I can't fix this paralysis. The dude knows more apologetics than I'll ever know. And it, I, I'm out of answers here. And Jesus is like, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. It's amazing. This is the privilege of our life, but it requires us to be inconvenienced. It requires us to get close enough to our community and our friends, both those who are following Jesus hardcore and those who aren't, where we're close enough to each other's lives, where we're invested. We know what's going on with people as a starting point. On the other side, we're vulnerable enough to share with people what's going on. There's some breakthroughs that you will get in your life that will only be had if you do community well. 
You can thrash around your entire life, and you will have that paralysis unless you have somebody who's going to pick you up and take you to the feet of the Jesus. He never intended us for do this, to do this walk by ourselves. And we do it by his ways, and things work. We don't, and there's ramifications. So let's jump into the second story, and let's talk about the similarities and the things that, that come from the first story and the second story. So the second story is, Jesus went on from there. He sees a guy named Matthew, who happens to be the author of this book. So it's this guy's testimony. So he sees Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. So tax collectors in this day were hated by the people. And the reason is, is because most tax collectors, in this case they were, Matthew uh, was a Jewish man. But what they did is Matthew aligned with Rome to collect taxes from the people. And then what they would do is they would overcharge people for their taxes to get some kickbacks. They would keep the ledger, and at the end of the day, if your ledger said not paid in full, whatever was in his book was what the Roman army then went to reinforce. So he'd literally like drop his tax book, and he'd say, okay, these are the 20 people that haven't paid up, and then the Roman army would go and like rough people up, or go and figure out a way that that person's going to make good on their taxes. It was like the IRS with unlimited authority. They're pretty close to unlimited authority, but they can't rough us up in this country. And so people were like, dude, it's a sellout, right? Like the first thing, you're a sellout. You've turned against God's chosen people. You've turned against your nation, your brothers and your family. And for the sake of riches and power, you sold out. And the accusation was totally true. So these people were hated, like hated, traitors. Jesus comes up to his tax booth while he's sitting there, and he says, follow me. Matthew gets up immediately, and he follows him. This is crazy. This guy who is hated for all the right reasons, in some senses, Jesus comes up and chooses him and then gives him the ultimate of ultimate privileges. What's more, what's, what's a more privileged place than being a disciple of the living God as he goes around and lives life? It's amazing. And so Jesus then goes over to Matthew's place, has dinner, and invites tons of tax collectors and sinners to come and eat with him and his disciples. So it's like Jesus, the 12, and then a bunch of people that everybody else hates. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a good question. <laughs> like, this isn't, I don't view this question as they have, like, tons of rebellion in their heart. This is, like, a good question. This was completely different than any of the other scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, rabbis. They would not have done this because eating, reclining at a table with people was a, th a thing of intimacy. It was like a statement about association with people. And so Jesus says to, to, to that question, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's but the sick. I've come to not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so let's break this apart. Let's find out what's going on in this, and let's make some application to our lives.
Judgment is a big deal. The idea of judgment. I want to talk a little bit about what the idea of judgment is biblically. The idea of judgment biblically is that you find something that's going on with an individual, and then based upon that thing, you throw them away. That's judgment in a nutshell. Pick your thing. It can be different. You know, we find a lot of different reasons to throw each other away as humanity. But that's judgment in a nutshell. Because what it is is you have this thing going on in your life, and because of this thing, I disregard you holistically. So the judgment is the thing that I'm seeing is, is big enough and worthy enough for me to throw you all away. So in judgment, what you've just done is you've empowered that thing to overshadow anything else that's going on in that person's life. That's judgment. Now let's talk about judgment in our world because it is flying around everywhere. Every time you see a statement on Facebook or otherwise of, oh, did you see this, this, and this thing? How could anybody with any common sense even imagine being associated with that person? That's judgment. That's judgment. Do you know everything about that person's life? Do you, are you confident that that one thing is worthy of throwing that person entirely away? I saw something recently that was like, there was a, a church that has an approach and a teaching about prophecy. And there was a comment made about a, a, a teaching on prophecy that was like, because of this one stance in terms of way, the way that we're supposed to interact with this one part of the way that we operate as a church, or this, this one like belief system that has to do with one, like, one gifting in the church, they're a bunch of heretics. We shouldn't listen to them. We should warn people about them. We should put judgment on them. They should be in the category of outside. And so what we're talking about is who's on the category of the outside and how much does it take to put people on the category of the outside? And for some reason that, that bewilders me because of, because of the fall of man and there's stuff going on. And for, some, for a number of reasons, we're prone to throw people away. We're prone to make holistic determinations about people because of the stuff that we're smart enough to spot in somebody's life. Or we know enough to make, oh, that's like, that's really bad theology in this area, so we should just chuck them away entirely. Even though the church is thriving, bringing hundreds of people to the Lord every month, is producing some of the best worship music that the church has to offer right now, is spreading all around. I mean, there's like, you could go on and on about the fruit. The same thing happened with Heidi Baker years ago. This woman is planting churches all over Mozambique, Africa. There, there, there's miracles happening everywhere through her ministry. People are coming to the Lord left and right, and there's people in the church casting judgment on her ministry and saying, you, you shouldn't listen to her. She's dangerous because she makes some noises when she preaches, and she's into this Holy Spirit thing a little bit too much. When I first saw Heidi Baker, I was offended too. She's up at the altar, and she's like, whoa, whoa. She's like doing some, some stuff that I'm like, that's super weird. It's really, really weird. 
It's like really offensive to my logic. Like, why do you need to do that in order to do what you're doing? Like, right? There's like, it's real stuff. It's like the not getting on the elevator thing. But there's like this huge portion of the body of Christ that throws her ministry away, throws her away, and puts her in the camp of like, don't listen to the stuff that she has to say because of that? Because of some, like, what are we doing? What are we doing on Facebook right now? It's a big slander fest. I've like hated getting on Facebook lately because it's like, Trump is wicked and vile. If, if you vote for him as a Christian or if you vote for him in general, you don't have a thread of logic in your head. And then, of course, the other side, what does it say? Exactly the same thing. Well, if you had any logic or maturity in your, if even a bone in your body, and you vote for Hillary, I mean, what are you thinking? Don't you know her stances? It's like, don't we see that all of this is judgment? Don't we see that all of this is divisive and not helpful? Don't we see that when this is going on, it's just inflammatory? And it's not changing anybody's mind? I feel like the devil's sitting back with his feet up being like, I don't even need to do anything anymore. Like, they'll just go at it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And then like this, it's not even anymore just the candidates themselves. It's the association with the candidates. How is, your, how is Jesus sitting with tax collectors and sinners? Right? It's, it's the association with the people. And so he gets thrown, like he's a potential of getting thrown away. We have to stop and just say that this is madness. This is madness. You know what's going on with Trump and Hillary? You know what's true about them? They're both children of God. They're both created in the image of God. Whether they recognize Jesus as Lord and King or not, they are still created in the image of God. So, can we respect them as people that have been created in the image of God? Can we stop tearing people down because what they're not and what, they're not, what they are and what they're not? Should we be calling out the stuff in their lives and saying like, yes, I actually want to know about the stuff that's going on in their life because it can affect my vote? Absolutely. Like, I think one of the most interesting things about this passage is that Jesus doesn't say that these people aren't sinners. He doesn't say that they're not sinners. He just says that, yes, they're sinners, but that's not the most important thing going on here. The most important thing going on here is that they get a revelation of who I am. And that before you come out of your sin, I'm here. I'm available. If you choose me, I'm all in. There's this powerful statement that Jesus is making to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the tax collectors and the sinners, and it looks something like this. No matter what your life has looked like, if you want to come follow me, awesome. And part of following me means leaving your old lifestyle— like, it's truly going from somebody who was living a sinful lifestyle to following me. Like, that is super real. But he doesn't need to have the sin bullhorn at every dinner that he goes to. It doesn't need to be the primary topic of conversation every time he enters the room. He's totally fine sitting with these people, making another statement about their value. 
The king of kings is willing to sit down with you at this table. The guy who just healed that paralytic and said that he has the authority over sins, yes, I am willing to sit down with you just as you are before you've done anything. I'm willing to, to, to get into a, a thing, a communal space with you that is seen as one of the most intimate things that you can do with people right now. And hordes come to him. Can you imagine if he had been this like sin amplification that's all that I see in my perspective type of person? Would anyone be sitting at the table with him? But they, the masses come to him. And it doesn't say that he, that he like first agenda is like, okay guys, like, you know, let's, let's all confess and repent immediately. It's like, that is a part of following Jesus. Confession and repentance is a part of following Jesus. But guess what it is? You're enamored with following Jesus. That's what comes along with following Jesus. It's not this, like, this thing that you have to be crazy consumed with all the time, and if you're a good Christian, the louder you yell at the sin that's in the world, the more earnest you are. Do you know that's what the, the Pharisees expected Jesus to do? That's, that's exactly their argument as to why he's not a real Christian. It's weird, because... Christian, Christ, Jesus, but he's not a real follower of God. Like, they have judgments against Jesus because he's not the, like them in the sense that he's, he's more concerned with the holy lifestyle than he is the person that's sitting in front of them. Maybe that's just not the message that they need to hear at this moment in order for them to end up following Christ. Not that it's not an important message, just that it doesn't need to be our only message. Not that we don't call people to true repentance. Why would we introduce someone to the most beautiful Lord in the world and say he can free you from all of these things and then expect that people, we would leave people in that place? Absolutely not. But like Jesus is making an absolute statement here about his priority. It's a priority statement. Jesus wanted people the Pharisees wanted people who had only done things that were right. The people that had great theology, a holy lifestyle, those are the people that the Pharisees would interact with and welcome in. Jesus wanted the people first, even the sick ones. He would search them out. He would find them out. He'd find the most sick of them all sitting in a tax booth, and he would go and he would dine with that person and call that person to repentance, to follow him. It's a statement about his value system. It's a statement about how this whole thing works. He's like, hey, the important part is come follow me. That stuff, that leaves as you come follow me. By coming to follow me, it is repentance. So let's go. Come follow me. And Matthew leaves. His tax booth behind. But don't miss the point here, the statement of priority. See if he wants to come up and share. Come on. I just wanted to share a little something that um, I was I was feeling and seeing when we were praying this morning. Um, so, so one of the things that I was seeing when I was I was praying because we pray for the church every every morning. Um, I saw like a whole bunch of snakes. And all of them had the word offense on them. 
And I felt like as I was praying, I was trying to like cut them all off at their head. And I feel like in this age and right now, especially in the climate of our nation, what the enemy is trying to do is just sow this ease of being offended. You know, we can call it judgment. We can call it, you know, a lot of different things. But what it is is being easily offended. You know, I don't think Jesus was easily offended. I think right now you can't say boo. You can't, like, turn your head the other way without someone being so offended about something and disregarding or making assumptions about what's going on in the heart of another person because of a specific action. And I just want to just highlight and bring that into a real-life situation because I feel like this is really what the enemy is tempting us to do. I believe that our nation is more divided than it's ever been because you can't, we can't, be in relationship with people unless they 100% agree with us and that they do everything exactly the way that we feel like it should be done. We can't submit to anyone or we can't go anywhere unless the very people who are we are with just prescribe to the very thing that we believe is right, the way that we believe it should be done. And because of that, our relationship circle becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because who else is going to see everything just that way except maybe you and a few other people? I'm not saying that those other people are okay or they're right. There's a lot of wrongs, but let's just be honest. The world is full of a lot of wrongs. It always has been. But for some reason now, we can no longer move beyond the fact that there are wrongs to see the people beyond them. And I think that that's really something, it is a work of the enemy in this age to try to divide the church and divide each and every one of us from each other and to bring a spirit of division into our nation. And I think that this is something that as Christians we need to be aware of and that we need to be vigilant to see beyond all of the mistakes and the, and the misspeaking and the, and the actions. You know, I think it's even more. One of the things that God does, it says that he sees the heart. And I think a lot of times... Bef- we need to start to weigh the heart more than the actions. And I'm not saying that we disregard and just say like that, that's okay. That's not what we're saying, but we are saying that the heart is more important. And I think that in this time, it is going to be really critical for us to start to see through the eyes of God and not through the eyes that anyone else or the enemy would like us to paint other people with. So I just wanted to speak that as I feel like that's just a word right now for um, our nation. And we'd love for the people who are in this body to exemplify that kind of sight and to walk with that kind of um, gait. Sorry it got intense in here real stuff, huh? (laughs) Cool. Well, that is a good place to crash land this sermon into this, into the side of the building. So let's, uh, let's all stand together. We need some prayer. There's a, 
There's a group of individuals here in this story, the last verse, where Jesus, at the end of it, sees what they're doing, sees that they're amplifying these people's lifestyle above their created image, above their value. And he makes this statement at the end. He says, he says to the teachers of this time, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you know what mercy is? It's when somebody's done something really wrong and you don't hold them accountable for it. It's when you don't give the punishment that someone deserves based upon their actions. And Jesus makes this statement to the Pharisees, and he says, hey, I don't, I want mercy. I don't want you highlighting and amplifying the things that people are doing wrong and holding it against them. That is what mercy is. That's the opposite of mercy in this case. It's judgment. How much do we amplify the stuff that people are doing wrong around us? That's what's going on on Facebook right now, man. It's like it, it's a big amplification mechanism, and we just take the stuff that people are doing wrong, and we amplify it times connection density, <laughs> times how many connections we have. And man, like, it's not just about Facebook, obviously. This is a way of life. Like, are we going to be the type of people that hold people to, to the wrong that's going on in their lives? Or are we going to be the type of people that show mercy? Man, I sure want mercy from the Lord. I'll tell you that much. I sure want mercy from my Lord. And this is a complex conversation that's you know, you can never do it complete justice in 45 minutes in, in this time. But as a church, we'll talk about this a lot, and we'll talk about it tonight, actually, um, in our all-members meeting. But, man, let's hear the words of Jesus here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice was there was this atonement that would happen in the law for the things that people had done wrong. So Jesus is saying, like, hey— Let's not hold people accountable in the way that you guys are, just drilling people to the wall about the things that they've done wrong and amplifying it and making it define them and throwing them out because let's not do that thing anymore. I desire difference in that category. I want mercy. And I want that more than, than what you're trying to do with these sacrifices. You're trying to be perfect to the law all the time. Nobody wants to hang out with you when you're like that. <laughs> All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you that you are incredibly merciful. Thank you that you came to seek and save sinners. God, that you, you came to seek and save out the, the people that are sick. And God, we just declare, God, that we do not have it all right. God, we put, our, we put ourselves in the camp of sick in many areas of our life, God. In our perspective, in our, in our theology, in our friendships, in our ability to love. There's so many areas, Lord, where we put ourselves in the camp of sick. And Lord, we exalt in that position because it's an open-door opportunity for you to be the great healer. Yeah. We ask, Lord, that you would have mercy on us. Yeah. 
God, that you would have great mercy on us, Lord, as we walk through this life, Lord. And we thank you that you're not the type of person that drills us to the wall with every little thing, God, that goes on in our life. And we're not at risk of you throwing us out by the next thing that we do because the beautiful blood of Jesus covers over your people. And God, once and for all, in the blood of Jesus, as we choose to follow you, God, you say, forgiven. Just like the paralytic, you say, son, your sins are forgiven. You didn't make him work it off. You didn't make him pay for it. You didn't make him serve you in like bringing you stuff for the rest of all of that would have been a minimal payment for the weight of sin that we carry before we come to you jesus but you don't do that you come to him and you say i see your faith your sins are forgiven and if there's anybody in here who's in a place where you're still carrying the weight of your own sin you need to get that stuff off of you and put it onto jesus he is so merciful this isn't a thing. I've talked to so many people where their, ba their barrier between them and coming to Jesus is they've got to get their life right first. And that's why Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of society, and had communion and broke bread with them first because he's saying, come to me first, and in following me, your broken lifestyle and the things that are not right about your life will fall off behind you. That is everybody's testimony who's ever come to Jesus and said, my life is sick. Every single one who comes in humility and says, man, there's things in my life. My family's a mess. I keep getting fired. I keep getting let go from my job because of this character defect. I'm miserable. I don't have joy in my heart. There's so many ways that we walk around sick, and Jesus invites all of us in and says, come to me. Come to me, the merciful one, and let me declare forgiveness over your life as you trust me and follow me. And so, Lord, we as your church, we ask for great wisdom. We ask for great understanding. We ask for great humility. And we ask, God, that in this time, Lord, that you would do a powerful work in our nation and in your church. God, we ask that you would come and that you would restore a place of unity. You would teach us what that means. You would teach us what unity means, God, that you would bring the body of Christ into unity in all of the ways that that means, God, and that you do a great work in our nation, God, to heal this land by the power of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in a politician. Our hope is not in politics at all. Our hope is in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're powerful, God. You're the powerful one, God. We see all the ways that society is broken, God. And if you choose to use government as a tool to restore, store it to your kingdom values, then great. If you choose to use some other way, our hope isn't there anyway. Our hope is in you first and foremost, God. And so we give you the glory. We give you the honor, God. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would just aid this message, God, that you would carry it and you'd walk alongside people as they unpack it and digest it, Lord and uh, that you would be the one who leads us and guides us into all truth. I give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. We're sitting in the dark, but we're going to leave here uh, without another worship song, which is weird for us. Oh, wait. You're not supposed to cheer about that. All right. So <laughs> bless you guys. I hope you have an amazing weekend. Um, and then for members, remember that we have all members meeting tonight at 730 at our place and come ready to talk more about this stuff.